Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This week on WealthTrack, an exclusive interview with the Davis Funds, Chris Davis and Danton Goey. They identify where in the world they are finding growth at value prices. Next on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective. Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences. Rosalind P. Walter and the Fairholme Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. As we all know, stock picking is really out of favor right now. Index funds have been garnering most of the headlines because of their low cost and the fact that the S&P 500, the most popular stock market index by far with investors, has been outperforming the vast majority of actively managed funds for well over a decade. The giant sucking sound of money leaving traditional mutual funds and pouring into passive index funds has reached an ear-splitting crescendo. Now, if you are a contrarian thinker, this almost one-directional flood into passive strategies raises some questions. First of all, is beating an index or even being in one the be-all, end-all of investing? Think back to the red-hot NASDAQ composite index at the peak of the tech bubble in 2000. Funds that didn't keep up suffered massive outflows. The NASDAQ then proceeded to decline 78% in less than three years. Many of the funds investors had abandoned proceeded to outperform that index for years. At any given moment, some index somewhere will be outperforming the average manager, an index for that matter. Another key question is, can the herd mentality, which is frequently wrong over multi-year periods, be right this time? Or is there now more value and safety to be found among some active strategies? This week's guests believe there is, and it is in their self-interest to do so as they are active fund managers. Christopher Davis is a third-generation money manager, chairman of Davis Advisors, and portfolio manager of several of the Davis funds, which have a nearly 50-year history of disciplined value investing. Chris took over its flagship New York Venture Fund in 1997 when his dad, Shelby Davis, stepped down. Since its 1969 inception, New York Venture has beaten the S&P 500 62% of the time in one-year periods, 66% of the time in five-year increments, 86% in 10-year periods, and 100% in 20, 30, and 40-year increments. New York Venture and its no-load version selected American shares have had a tougher time in recent years. They beat the S&P 500 last year, but underperformed it in six of the last 10 although they made money in all but two of those years. Danton Goey joined New York Venture and selected American shares as co-manager in 2014. He has been with Davis Advisors for nearly 20 years and single-handedly runs some of their top-performing funds, including the Davis Global Fund. 
Rated four-star by Morningstar, Davis Global has beaten its benchmark and category over multiple-year periods since its 2004 inception. Now, I should also add that the Davis funds are highly regarded for their shareholder-friendly policies, including reducing expenses and recently introducing actively managed ETFs to give investors more options. I began the interview by asking Davis and Goey a stock-picking question. What is the value proposition of one of their largest holdings? Amazon.com. This is one of the great misnomers, this idea that growth and value are something different. They're related. Companies that grow and grow profitably are more valuable than companies that don't. So growth is a component of value. And this is nothing new for us. You know, when my grandfather started investing, he invested in life insurance stocks. Right. And other investors said, you're crazy. They have no earnings. And of course, they didn't have earnings because this was the early 1950s, late 1940s. They were growing. The soldiers were coming home. The baby boom was underway. And so they were paying big commissions out to their salesmen that were selling these life insurance policies. And the life insurance policies would generate huge value over the next 30 years. But in the first year of growth, growth cost, right? So the company invested in its growth. Then you look at my dad investing in the 80s and 90s, cable companies. There's no earnings. Right. But what are they doing? They're investing in growth. Well, Amazon is exactly that model. Amazon's, if Amazon chose to stop growing, we think it would be very profitable today in their core retail businesses. Amazon is investing to grow. And you know, over 15 or 20 years, Walmart invested to growth to grow. And although it produced earnings, if you were to look at the cash flow statement, after capital spending, Walmart generated almost no cash for something like 15 years. So we measure value based on cash money generated. And if companies aren't generating cash because they're reinvesting for growth, we look at the returns on that investment. And there, Amazon stands alone. All right. Well, Dan, so, so I understand that the fundamental analysis, so you, know, you just made a compelling case. But what about the price of the stock? What's interesting that uh, Chris mentioned also is uh, this idea of adapting and growing. Yes. And so they, what they have done, uh, it's important also to talk about their other business when talking about valuation price, is they've built a great retail business, as we know. But they've also built this great cloud computing business as well. And I bring that up just because that's a big part of the value proposition as well. And so Jeff Bezos and his team um, are very forward thinking. And they looked at themselves and said, hey, we're beating the competition because of the cloud computing power that we're putting to use, beating Borders, beating Barnes & Noble, beating the, the corner bookstore. Let's put that cloud computing to the use for third party uh, and other companies, because they're also going to be able to interest, be interested in this. And so they've created this AWS business, Amazon Web Services, which is also very valuable. So when we look at that and see the growth there and how profitable it is, and then look at the retail business where they're also reinvesting in whether it's India or China or Prime Now where we're getting you know, one to two hour delivery, uh, fresh, Amazon Fresh, and uh, on uh, groceries. When we look at that and uh, think about the investments they're making there, and adjust for that, we think it is a very compelling and profitable business. Let me ask you a couple more questions about some of your major holdings that you share, both in New York Venture and, and also in, in the uh, Davis Global Fund. And, and Danton, one of them, of course, is Alphabet, the parent company of Google. Uh, you know, again, value proposition, value and growth. Why 
is Davis investing so heavily in Google? Well, you know, uh, back in the 90s and 2000 when I joined Davis, we owned a number of newspaper companies. And these had been just fabulous businesses for a long period of time. In fact, Chris came to me and said, I want, to follow, I want you to follow this new industry, you know, this industry. It's uh, built uh, wealth over decades, if not centuries. Uh, families have built fortunes upon, a, upon it. It's very profitable and it has monopolies in their, in their, uh, in their business. And so the, you know, they were built on advertising. We were following the trends there and basically hearing this big sucking sound of ad dollars. And we basically followed that sucking sound and it led us to Google. Um, really? Early on? Early on. Right. And uh, we were trying to figure out at the time in the early 2000s whether it was the cyclical downturn of the economy or whether there was a secular risk of this thing called the internet at the time that was becoming more and more popular. And we settled on the idea that Google and companies like that were actually drawing all these advertising dollars towards them and were the, the new newspapers, the new advertising mediums uh, of the future. And they were better. You know, this yeah. is the thing. Over, over 20 years, Dan and I have had a few meetings that are really memorable. But the one when he came in and said, you know, you love these newspapers, but have you you've heard of this internet thing? <laughs> it, it's better. If you're uh -huh. looking for a house, right. it is wildly inefficient going through the ads and circling. If you're looking for a job, you know, why are you looking at dog walking jobs if you want to be an accountant? The internet is better. It's cheaper. It's a much better user experience. That is, people will definitely shift there. And the valuation, I mean, one of the things this goes back, Google may have been one of the, the deepest value companies we've ever bought because it may have looked a little bit expensive at the time, but three years later, it was trading at eight times earnings or something what, what, from what we had originally paid for it. And so, you know, understanding that nature that you right. could be instantly global, instantly ubiquitous, I think we would have bought more earlier if we had understood just how dominant. Remember, there was Ask Jeeves, there was Yahoo. So yes. we were thinking of the market as possibly three or four players like Network TV and, uh, and not realizing. And so over time, our conviction has grown as we've seen that dominance of a winner-take-all approach. So I'm going to move from kind of the FANG stocks uh, to financial stocks, which has been a hallmark of the Davis Fund since the get-go. And I think, what, 30% of, of your, the holdings in New York Venture, for instance, are, are in financial stocks. Wells Fargo, again, another name that is shared by New York Venture Fund and also Davis Global. Why Wells Fargo? Well, first I'd start by saying, you know, there's a general theme at our place that's played out over probably 70 years, which is we're always interested in investing where headlines are lousy. Right. And so, you know, today within the financial sector, we get so excited because the memories of the financial crisis, they've just been seared in. And people just refuse to believe that somehow the banks aren't constantly teetering on the brink, even though their capital ratios are higher, they're more profitable, there's less irrational competition. In a funny way, the regulations have increased the moat around the businesses. So we think this is an extraordinarily good time to invest in financials with rising dividends, low relative valuations, strong capital ratios, uh, uh, just a great time. Now within that, of course, Wells Fargo, in a sense, checks a lot of boxes. Right, because of this scandal, they're in the penalty box. Their right, valuation which had nothing to do with the financial crisis. No, nope, it, right, was, it was it was a self-inflicted wound. Right, and it came from something that had worked very well. You know, cross. You know, Wells's proposition going all the way back to when it was run by Dick Kovacevic and was Norwest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He had a simple observation. He said, 
why is it that people like going to stores, but they hate going to their bank? And the answer was at stores, they get great service, things are packed, convenient. And he built a culture there based on the idea that instead of branches, they had stores. The stores look at what customers need, what will help them, sell them the product. Right. Including, by the way, having a commissioned sales force instead of a bunch of bureaucrats. Well, of course, it worked well for decades. And we as consumers liked it mm -hmm. because having multiple accounts at one bank is way better than having three or four accounts spread out. And Wells did a wonderful job of bundling your accounts. Well, of course, what happened? They went too far on every possible axis. Right. And their behavior was absolutely inexcusable. There's no question about it. So, you know, our feeling is over the next decade, of course, Wells is solving these problems. In the meantime, they have very high customer satisfaction scores. They have wonderful, wonderful employee retention. They have a dominant franchise, what they do. And, and we think they remain, especially broadly speaking, one of the great lenders and one of the great credit cultures. So to get all that at such a low multiple with rising dividends, excess capital, you know, often crisis creates opportunity. We don't condone their behavior, but we are taking advantage of the valuation discount it created. Speaking of headline risk, Danton, I mean, 30% of your, uh, your, the Davis Global Fund, I think is in emerging markets. And your, and your Chinese holdings in particular, I mean, I, I looked at some of the figures, have done incredibly well versus a China index versus the S&P 500. Um, but China is, is a headline risk. I mean, just by its very nature, a lot of investors have been afraid to invest in China because they don't trust it. You know, it, uh, very similar to sort of, you know, Wells Fargo, the opportunity is there because people are skeptical, because they're doubtful. Now, the track record is also, though, very strong. If you look about, you know, the last 18 years, the um, GDP has grown over there by over 9% compounded mm -hmm. for close to two decades. And as you say, there are risks in China, and we do aim to mitigate them. For example, we only invest in Hong Kong-listed or U.S. ADRs in Ch for Chinese companies. So none of the A-share, you know, the A-share market is dominated 80% by personal individual investors, and that's why it's a wild swing uh, up and down. We're not in that casino. We want the listing requirements, the accounting transparency, um, the custodi custodian uh, requirements, whether it's in the U.S. or in Hong Kong with uh, international accounting standards. The government who built that track record is the same government who's in place now. And there are a lot of things that we would not certainly agree with. You know, as an American, i rather live here than mm -hmm. over there because of the personal liberties that we have here. But the track record of building strong economy and allowing strong businesses to grow is there. So we have a really, in fact, even though it's a communist country, it's a very pro-business government. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we're looking for as shareholders. Is it an economy that could thrive over time? It will slow down for sure, but there are a lot of real opportunities there, uh, we believe. Right. There is a Chinese company that I think is your top, one of your top ten holdings, whose name I'm not going to mispronounce because I'll completely garble it. But tell me about that and why it's in both New York Venture and in... I believe you're talking about uh, Didi. Yes. Didi Chuxing, and that is the equivalent to sort of Uber here in the United States. I see. So it's a ride-sharing, ride-hailing platform uh, over there. Now, what's really interesting is that they went head-to-head -head with Uber. So this, Uber is the incumbent, the global competitor. Didi is only in China so far. 
uh, and they won, Didi won. Uh, they beat uh, Uber at its own game there. So they, they have become just very efficient, uh, very technologically savvy. And what's really interesting is that even though Didi is only in China, it has more rides per day than Uber has globally. And that just speaks to the size of right. the Chinese market, right? Here we've got about 10 cities of uh, over a million people. There they have over 100 cities, over a million people. So why is it in New York Venture, Chris? Well, interestingly, New York Venture, one of the lenses that we look at as a firm is we look for world leaders. And yet there is something in the minds of U.S. investors that still thinks that somehow uh, China is something different. Right. Now, of course, there are differences. But without question, I would say a company like Didi, and we'd met with the management of Uber over the years. If we had owned Uber, it would not be surprising. And yet instead, we chose a company that we believe has far better management, mm -hmm. is actually larger, uh, is, and yet was cheaper. Right, but Uber's not and, publicly traded. Uh, yes, and actually neither is Didi yet. So these ah, are investments. So these are private investments that you've made. Yes. yes. I see. And, and that is also, you know, as you know, we, we invest our own money in the funds that we manage. Right. We're looking, you know, we're less concerned with labels than we are with building wealth over a long period of time. And so it's a bit of an unusual holding mm -hmm. uh, in, in New York Venture, but very consistent with our history of, you know, when I first started, we owned Elf Aquitaine. Yes. And it was at such a discount to the U.S. oil companies. And then there was a time where we owned companies like Nestle that were at such a discount to Coca-Cola and P&G. Now we're in a world where people would own Google or own Uber, uh, but they wouldn't look over at Didi or at Alibaba. And we think they're missing something very powerful, which is the, that China is not an emerging market. It has emerged. <laughs> right, exactly. I think when you're the second largest, it has emerged. And so I think that is sort of the, the mindset that we try to do to be in front of that type of thing. Right. The rise of the online consumer is one of your global mm -hmm. themes. Another one is the emerging middle class. So tell me about the world leaders, Danton, in those areas. What would you pick? Mm -hmm. In the online consumer, for instance, worldwide. We're seeing something really radical happening here at an accelerating pace in the United States, but it's a global phenomenon, and that's the transformation of the retail sector. Right. In China, that pace is even faster uh, and, in some sense, bigger. Uh, China, for example, uh, the, the online commerce is 15% of retail versus about 8 or 9% here. And e-commerce market is larger than the U.S. one. So the Chinese, they've basically, just like the cell phone, skipped to yes. online and not gone to you know, landlines or physical stores. Uh, and so we've invested a number of those companies, Alibaba or JD.com uh, in China, to mm -hmm. take advantage of that phenomenon. And the rising middle class is, a, is another. Uh, well, I think they're a the great theme. example as this, you know, uh, it, when people have some money, what, what are the sorts of things they want to do? Well, one, in, one is travel. And so when we look at miles flown, we, we see that as sort of a relentless growth industry with sort of, you know, if you pardon the pun, wonderful tailwinds. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at how to invest in that, we look across the entire industry from the people that make aircraft engines uh, to airline manufacturers. So you United Technology, for instance, or... United right. Technologies in the U.S., maybe Safran, mm -hmm. uh, outside of the U.S., both dominant engine manufacturers. But we might also look at airlines. Now... Here, we've missed this big move in U.S. airlines 
Uh, maybe we were overscarred by years in the past. Uh, but, you know, you might see it in some emerging market airlines. Right. Uh, uh, so there we might look at airlines. So we'll look at online travel booking services. Uh, so there are all different ways that when we look at an ecosystem that grows, that's a theme that we're interested in on a global basis. Then we go down company by company. What are the best ways to participate? Sometimes they're in the U.S., sometimes they're international. And in a sense, we have the funds where we can put the best ideas in that theme into either an international, global, or domestic fund. And the scope there is, you know, is, is broad. I mean, you can look at Federal Express, which mm -hmm. we own yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. You can look at uh, companies like ZTO in China, which is the sort of equivalent there. So it really is across industries, uh, trying to understand how this theme, such as the middle class uh, or online retailing or travel, really impacts these. Um, and it really, you can, really shows up in the portfolio. So we have to ask you the, all of these you know, really interesting ideas, but we're going to ask you to choose one, Danton. If there's one investment that we should all be making in a long-term diversified portfolio, what should we all own some of? So if I had to choose one investment to put a large part of my net worth in, where I could not uh, trade it or even see how it's been doing for 10 years, um, I would put it into Safran. Chris mentioned it. It's a jet engine manufacturer. It's a French company. Um, it is one of the leaders. So the jet engine manufacturing uh, area is a really interesting space. Uh, and I would say, broadly speaking, the aerospace industry is a very interesting and great pond to fish in. But why have we chosen the jet engine manufacturing space to look at? When you look at who's the players there, there are actually only three players that supply jet engines to all the commercial aircraft manufacturers, and that is Safran with their partner GE, Pratt & Whitney, which is owned by United Technologies, which we also own, UTX, and then Rolls-Royce. And if you look at the market where Safran plays in, which is the narrow body market, there they have 75% of that space. Wow. And the narrow body market is really the workhorse of, of fleets across the world. These are the Boeing 737s, the Airbus A320s, and it's the fastest growing part of the market as well. And with GE as a partner. And with GE as a partner, it's a 50-50 joint partnership with General Electric. And what's great about the business is that these planes, uh, the median age is 25 years. So once you are the engine on these planes, you have 25 years of service and parts revenue ahead of you. That Safran also gets. That Safran also gets. And it's certainly not a household name for, for us, that's for sure. So that's, that's a very interesting idea. If I was to pick something that I think is uh, particularly cheap today, and where I think it is also just being punished by headline risk and misunderstanding, it would be a financial company, Capital One. And I think what is unusual is Capital One, which is one of the largest banks in the country, is still run by its founder. Mm, wow. We don't really think about that. But Rich Fairbanks, who was the founder of this, it started as a pure, almost virtual company doing mail order uh, uh, credit cards, right. created a whole new market of segmenting data, very data-driven, and only got into branches through an acquisition uh, around the time just before the financial crisis to create more stable funding. Well, think about what that means in a world going electronic, fintech. Here you have a company where in its DNA they understand that you access customers, you don't wait for them to walk into your branch. And so I like their positioning 
I like their culture. And I like the fact that in a world where every other lender is fighting for the super premium customer, mm -hmm. high spending, high reward, sapphire, platinum, gold, you know, black, uh, that, that Capital One has been left alone on Main Street. So it's great to have you both here. And, and Danton Goey, this is the first time that I've met you. And I know Chris has been talking about you because you've been with Davis Advisors for 19 years. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate was, your being here. It was a lot of fun. And Chris Davis, always a pleasure to have you on Wealth Track as well. Thank you, Consuelo. Thanks. At the close of every wealth check, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is don't get caught up in the investment craze of the moment. Right now, that craze is beating the market, specifically the S&P 500, which has had an exceptional run since 2009. As they were in the 1990s, every fund manager is now being compared to an index. Then it was the Nasdaq Composite. In the 1980s, it was Japan for global investors. There are other better long-term criteria like risk-adjusted returns. Does the fund cushion you during market declines? Inflation-adjusted returns. Does it protect your purchasing power by delivering returns comfortably above the rate of inflation over time? Consistency of investment style and discipline. Diversification of holdings. Attention to costs. All of these considerations matter far more than just beating a hot index that at some point will cool off. And meanwhile, in the extra feature on our website, we will ask this week's guests about introducing their actively managed ETFs. We appreciate how active our audience has been in connecting with us. Keep your thoughts coming with your Facebook messages and tweets. Thanks for watching and have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.